0: But let's turn in our Bibles now to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verse 15, and I'm going to read down through 64 and verse 4. Let's stand together and hear God's word. From Isaiah 63 and verse 15, we are entering into the prayer of the prophet. So we're reading from somebody else's prayer. So you just need to know that that's the portion of Scripture we're taking from this morning. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart, and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our Father, though Abraham was ignorant of us. And Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear. Nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Amen. Our Father God, these are just words. The preaching is nothing but for the germination of the seed. In one ear, out the other. It's the way preaching goes. Too often. Oh God, they're just words. But you bring your spirit and power. We are helpless without you. Father, a a dry pipe but for the spirit pushing the grace, the the water, the, the understanding, the wisdom into each and every one of us. Please, God, we are at your mercy. Please speak to us today. Father God, speak to us through your word today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. Well, I know it's unusual studying somebody else's prayer, but we get a lot of content here. I think we get example of, of what is a godly prayer. So we're going to draw from that a little bit. I encourage you to enter into the spirit of it as much as the Holy Spirit is within you, and you have ears to hear this morning, and you have a heart that is open. Enter into this. You know, come on in. What I'm doing, I'm inviting you into the spirit of this. Really lean into it. And try to understand where the prophet is coming from. And of course, it's a prayer for revival, isn't it? It's revival. And you've heard revival enough, I'm sure, in this church. Reviving, what is it but the infusion of spiritual life and more life and life more abundantly? And this is what we all want. How many of you don't want life more abundantly? I, no, but I don't know anybody who says, we don't need no revival. I haven't, I haven't gone to a church, at least at this point, where, some, where people have said, you know what, we, we really don't need revival. I don't think they confess to it. But I don't know. I, I just don't know. Do we or don't we? Do they or don't they? I, I, I don't know, but to say you know, we're doing great. Everything's great. Um, all my friends are saved. My relatives are all saved. Church is doing great. No apostasy in any of the youth. All of our children are doing great. All of our grandchildren are doing great. We don't need revival. It's just phenomenal. The church is phenomenal. I'm doing phenomenally. I, I I don't hear that very much except perhaps from Oprah Winfrey or Joel Osteen or somebody like that or some mega church that isn't interested in revival. But I guess my encouragement this morning is, can you Can you say amen to this? Can you you feel it? Can you agree with it? Can you say, yes, it's my heart's desire. I pray this prayer. This is my prayer. This is what I want. This is what I'm crying out for. And I will not let him go until he blesses me with this. Can you say that? Do you believe that? Do you want that? Do you desire it? Is that your heart? Is that you're crying out to God every day? Is that it for you, brothers and sisters? You, you gotta you gotta ache for it a little bit. You should try this. Go to Africa. Go to Africa. See the worldwide church in Nepal, in Malawi or China or somewhere, and and then come back to the US and you're just gonna grieve. It's just gonna be grieving. You will come back to America and you will grieve. I'm just telling you that's what will happen. Go to another country and come back to America and just grieve. Just grieve. And it's okay to have a period of grieving. That's all right. That's what Isaiah did. That's what Jeremiah did. That's what Jesus did. That's what the church of Corinth and Ephesus and Laodicea was supposed to do. That's it. You're supposed to grieve. You are. This needs to be a period of... Grieving. It's all right. It's all right. They say when somebody dies, you've got to have a period of grieving. You can't just go to parties for the next year. That's what they say. I mean, you can't. You've got to do it. It's a period of time, and it's allow- it's allowable. that's allowable. In fact, it's it's encouraged. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. It's okay. It's, it's required. It's commanded. It's it's the blessed state. Blessed are those who mourn. You will be blessed if you mourn, if you grieve. It's okay to grieve. Jesus gives us permission to grieve. It's, it's all right. Now, again, the response is not anger. It shouldn't be anger. Should, I don't think it should be anxiety. I don't think it should be ungratefulness and grumbling. I think we got to be cautious. There's, there's ditches here. Yes, I agree. God has done great things, and we need to acknowledge that. We need to be grateful for the good things that he's done. But it's okay to have a period of grieving. So the yeah, prophet is coming here with a prayer of grief, but also faith and importunity and insistence. We, we see this in this. 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a series of sermons, a very famous series of sermons on this passage. And uh, here's a quote from, from what he said in 1959. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking 65 years ago. Our predicament is almost exactly like that of the children of Israel. The great city of God lies in a heap of rubble. That is the picture of the modern church. And he said it in 1959. 1959. And I, I believe our nation is 100 times worse off shape than it was in the 1950s and 60s. The fervor for revival, as far as I can tell, is nowhere near what it was in the 1960s and 1970s. In my travels around the world, I see that revival also is going on. I've told the elders this. I've seen it so many times in Africa and Nepal and Asia and South America. I see it way, way more often Among the Reforming Baptists and the Presbyterians. So understand, we are at an extremely low ebb. Historically, denominationally, and geographically here in the United States, we are at a very low ebb, spiritually speaking. Right here, right now. God have mercy on us. Just read your history books, travel a little bit, get around. We are at the bottom of the barrel right here in America in 2023. This is where we are. We need it. We need God here. So feel the pain. I encourage you, just feel it a little bit. Just feel it. Receive it. You know, just say, okay, I'm going to take 10 minutes and face it. Don't anesthetize yourself with wealth and your escapisms or whatever. Don't run off to entertainment this afternoon. Don't watch a movie this afternoon. Don't do that. Allow the pain to sink into your heart and receive it and feel it so that you're ready for for this kind of prayer for you and for for your family and for my family and for our church and for the churches in the CPC and around the world. Just, I encourage you to, to feel it. And the most famous sermon preached in the last 20 years in America was preached in 2002 in New York City by David Wilkerson just before he died. It's by far the most famous sermon, most, most broadcast sermon. It was legendary. And, and he preached it on this subject of feeling it. Feeling it. The pain, the anguish of it. And I just quote a little bit. Folks, Here's what he said, the opening words. I'm tired of hearing about revival. I'm tired of hearing about awakenings. Last day outpourings of the Holy Spirit. I've heard that rhetoric for 50 years. Just rhetoric. I'm tired of hearing about people in the church who say they want their unsaved loved ones saved. I'm tired of hearing people say I'm concerned about my troubled marriage when it's just talk, rhetoric. I look at the whole religious scene today and all I see is the invention ministries of man and flesh It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music, entertainment taking over the house of God, an obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction, a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress, emotion so stirred that it becomes painful, acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions all around you, in you, and about you. Anguish, deep pain and sorrow, the agony of God's heart. So, brothers and sisters, we, we cannot be content with just the emotion of it or the rhetoric superficial concern the superficial wounds and the healing of the wounds too lightly that's what we've seen a lot of and we just can't be content with that we can't just say that's great we've got revival now no 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 we can't can't stop with that it starts with anguish urgency a single-minded insistence that that we see and we encounter the power of god and nothing less than the power of god And we will not stop in prayer. We will not stop in appealing to God until we see, we have witnessed, and we know that we've witnessed the power of God in my life, in your life, in the church. That's it. We we have to be one hundred point zero 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 percent sure that it is the power of God, not man's programs. You can get free from drugs by man's program down on Main Street in Elizabeth. My wife said for $20,000. She said, I don't know how she found that out. Somebody told her, I guess. There are 10,000 programs, books and whatever, on how to deal with addictions in this country to help you into the pool of Bethsaida. But Jesus isn't showing up. The power of God isn't acting. And so we as believers need to say, we need God here. We need Jesus. We will not stop until Jesus comes. And lifts up the the lame man and and cures the paralysis of that man so that he doesn't need the pool. He doesn't need to make believe whatever it is the psychologists or the counseling programs are giving him. Because he knows the power of God has visited him and raised him up. So this prayer comes with an intensive urgency. The anguish of spirits, a steadfast looking to the eyes of God. And as Lloyd-Jones says, it's a laying hold on God. It's taking hold of him and not letting go. The prayer is bold. It's intentional, insistent, fervent to the ultimate degree. Wrestling till the morning hours. Eight hours of wrestling with God as Jacob did in that valley. Till the break of dawn. Continuing, not giving up. Continuing to press in upon God. Until he comes, until he acts, until he does his work in me and in you and in this body. This is the prayer of the prophet. There must be first and foremost always in every prayer, in every potential salvation that happens to anybody in this room, there must be a sense of your need. Before you pray, you must need to pray for the need. That's first. There must be the need. Why don't men pray for lack of need? It's such a simple concept. Is everything okay? Everything good? Too many people say, yeah, it's all good. No, it's not all good. It's all bad right now in your life, and you're just not acknowledging it. That's the kind of response that we need to send home to people. There is need, there is significant need and we need a sense of that need, an understanding of the need. Before you pray, you know, take a moment. Before you move on this morning, take a moment. Think about it. I have to do this before I pray. I mean, I think everybody does, don't they? Why am I praying? I think there's something needful in my life. There's something lacking. There, there's a need. There, I, I know there's a need. Uh, I have a mosquito bite right now on my nose. No, there's something more than that. I think it's more than that. You know, you got to dig a little bit. you got to say, no, it's more than just some superficial issue, spiritually or physically. No, there's more to it than that. What is it? What is the need? Take a moment. Consider the need. That's first. An understanding of the spiritual bankruptcy and ability to see the dryness. Perhaps you can't see. It's, It's all dried out. Spiritual barrenness, spiritual anemia, the sheer out of control, messed upness of, of so many lives. The flakiness and superficiality we apply to diagnosing the problems. Can we see these things? Can you see these things? Is it clear now? Do you understand what we're dealing with the upper hand of the devil in our family's lives? He's got more of an upper hand than he should have in this church. We've seen him rake his claws down over families before. We've seen demonic incursions into people's lives who've left the door open by pride or pornography or lustful sins or whatever it is. They've left the door open and that demon has come in to this body. Or to your family or, okay, okay, you've got something there. Satan has inroads into this church. That's a problem. That's a major problem. Faithlessness, prayerlessness, the lack of love for God, the lack of love for the church, the worldliness that seems to creep into the church, whatever it is. Take the time. Study it. What is it? What's the need? Don't turn away from it. Don't run away. Come face to face with the reality of it because you need something to pray for this morning. Amen? How many of you want to pray? Okay, you need something to pray for. So so you've got to think about it. You've got to get it down. Where where are we? What do we need? We need God. What do we need Him to do? Think about it. The need first, then the prayer. For us, for our local church, the church in this country, the church around the world, primarily Israel is praying for the church. Children, Israel has turned into a bad church. Israel is a bad church. That's, That's... his heart issue. That's the cry. That's the thing he's most concerned about. So now let's look at his prayer. Verse 15, look down from the heavens and see from your habitation holy and glorious. He says, Isaiah appeals to the heart of God, but he first he looks up and tells God to look down. God, you are ultimately holy, ultimately glorious. Look down at us. We're unholy. We're inglorious. We are the inglorious. We are the unholy. Oh, God, it's your people down here. You are the perfected one. You you are perfect. We are the imperfect. Oh, God, look down from heaven. You're in a place of absolute holiness. You're contained in your gloriousness. But look down upon us. And then again, he appeals to the heart of God when he says, Where are your zeal and your strength and the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards us? Are they restrained? What does this mean? It means that God is zealous. What does that mean? God is on fire. God God is a consuming fire. How do we configure God? This is important in your prayer. Who are you talking to here? God is, is intense. He's a consuming fire. He's very much involved. He's very much concerned with what's going on in his world. He's not passive. In any definition of the word, God is not passive. God is the living God, the active God, the working God, the God who does things. He's highly passionate, emotionally concerned with the hearts, dispositions, actions, and morality of the conditions here and everywhere around the world. God is ultimately concerned and connected. Living and active, he is a consuming fire. But there are periods of time in which God has removed his presence and power from his people. He turns his face away from his people and the church is not seeing the conversions the baptisms the Holy Spirit power the churches are not reforming they're, they're not increasing in love and passion for the kingdom for missions for church planting reforming agendas are falling flat children are walking away from the faith God has turned his face away that's what's happening God has turned his face away from his people so the appeal comes, where is your zeal, your strength, your yearning of heart, your mercies towards me? Are they restrained? The assumption is that God still loves his church. He still loves the American church. He's still in covenant. He's turned his face away, but there's still a relationship there. He hasn't entirely given up on us yet. So that's the assumption here in the prayer. And yet there's a distance. We're down to a tiny remnant. We're terribly fractured. Terribly compromised. We're exceedingly sinful. Worldliness has crept in, etc. And this cannot be the way it ends. Can't imagine that the church is going to die out. The prophet says, We are familiar with your zeal, your love, your power. You've already unleashed your power. You manifested your zealousness at the Red Sea. You rolled up your sleeves and you delivered your people at the Red Sea. You committed yourself and loved by dedicating yourself to this and by dedicating yourself, your own only begotten Son on the cross for this cause, for this redemption. But now you've gone silent on us. That's the prayer. You've gone silent. So here's where we lay hold upon God. We, we say, doubtless, you are our father. Verse 6, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. Abraham and Jacob, they've forgotten us. They've disinherited us. Luther would, would utterly despise the evangelical Lutheran church in America. John Wesley wouldn't have anything to do with United Methodists and all their homosexuality. John Knox would, would vomit over what's happening in Scotland over his church. They wouldn't have anything to do with these things. But God, you, I I know that Luther and Wesley and and Knox would have nothing to do with any of us. I get it. I get it. But God, you, turn back your face towards us. You're a father, you're a redeemer, you're it. Give you an example. Consider a wealthy, godly father. The son falls in with the wrong crowd, he's kidnapped. Calls up his father. His father's this wealthy, godly, loving father. He's like the prodigal. He's kidnapped some far country somewhere. Calls up his father from the far country. Says, Dad, help me. Help me, Dad. You're my father. I'm your son. Dad, it's me. Help me. They're about ready to kill me. The cartel's coming down to me. Going to slice off my head in just a moment. God, I need your help. Or, Father, I need your help. What would the Father's response be to that? Do you think that prayer would be persuasive? Because He's the Father. Of course it will be persuasive. And children, this is the second point. God has all the love and power to rescue us. So now verses 17 through 19, confess our condition. We've appealed to God on the basis of his love, his covenant, his commitment, his passion, his, his past dealings with his people. And now we confess our condition to him in verses 17 through 19. Oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old." over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. What is this? You've made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear. This is double causality, not unlike what happens with Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was a both and. Both were happening at the same time. We read that Exodus. Same thing's happening here. We're hardening our own hearts, and yet God is pressing down upon us, and that results in the hardening of our hearts even more. And we understand this in relationships. This is how relationships work, where there's a push-pull. One pulls back, or one pushes somebody against somebody, pushes them away, and then that person pulls back. There's a pulling back, and there's a pulling back on the other side. There's a little bit of both happening at the same time. Our pulling back from God results in God's pulling back from us. And God's pulling back from us results in more of us pulling back from Him. This is the way a bad, a strange relationship works. When there's a coldness of heart among God's people, there's a coldness of heart with God as well. This is a relational concept. We can't get away from it. Yes, God is sovereign over all aspects of it. But within the context of the relationship, realize that the coldness of heart in the worship of God, a coldness of heart in terms of our response to his law and our our unwillingness to, to confess our sins, or whatever it is, humble ourselves before God. If he senses the coldness of hearts toward him, he begins to pull back from his church as well. Both happens at the same time. Moreover, there's a straying from God's ways. Sinfulness creeps into the church. Many discipline issues begin to crop up in the church. There's a hardening of the heart. we already mentioned Especially with the word of God, no tears over 25 years of sermons. Just no tears. No sense of conviction. Just the hardness of heart. The hardness of heart. And then the further ruin of the church comes by Satan's trouncing all over the church. Satan begins to take advantage of the situation. becomes a dreadful, horrible sight, which is what happened here to Israel. The same thing happens to churches in America as well. The devil gets a foothold. The devil gets in there. And the devil messes it up even more and the conflict's get even worse and the, the discipline issues don't go in the right direction and it just, it just spirals out of, con- out of control because of all of these added factors going on with the church. And then we read in verse 19, we have become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name even before Abraham. All the way back to pre-flood days This is what we look like. We've traveled to places... All over the the world, to Africa, South America, the Bahamas, been to the Bahamas three to four times, driven past the resorts. The vision is striking, really interesting. The irony, I think, is immediately obvious. The staff, that is the natives, those who live there, are nicely dressed. And the Europeans and American visitors look like the natives did 600 years ago when Columbus first visited the Caribbean islands. Body mutilations, virtually naked, etc. So it's interesting now, again let 's not focus on the externals, but i 'm telling you the rebellion in the hearts of Americans and, and the apostate nations of the Western world is just it 's overwhelming to, to see it not just in the phys- physical, the visible, the external, but also in terms of their hearts and their lack of receptivity to the word. Uh, my wife and I were shocked when we were in Africa, and we were on the streets evangelizing, and people immediately opened. It was just the opposite of what happens here in Colorado. The hearts were so much softer, so much more receptive. It was night and day. Here you need a jackhammer working for seven hours to get like a half an inch into the soil. Unbelievable hard-hearted here in America, but in other nations, they're quite open to this. The apostasy in America, in the Western world, is striking. We have become like those of old over whom you have never ruled, those who were never called by your name. And then just coming back from Africa, many of the Christian scandals going on in Africa are European-American missionaries now. The African pastors that came after me, one after another, talked about Reformed Presbyterian missionaries who fell into adultery and homosexuality, utterly shamed the name of Christ on the mission field. In fact, one of the missionaries became an advocate for homosexuality with the Malawian courts in Malawi. Shameful. Shameful, shameful. What's happening It's terrible. The American church is increasingly an embarrassment to the whole world. It's not just Hillsong either. It's the Reformed Presbyterians. Shameful. Oh God, help us. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. The conditions are hard, brothers and sisters. America's in apostasy, and the churches are in the process of losing 70, 80% of their members to all-out apostasy, and we see this happening generation after generation after generation. I don't have to point all this out to you. You know this. We have the cacophony of voices that just are pointing fingers and such at this or that. I think generally tertiary problems. There's a thousand irritations. We see political issues. We see a lack of freedom. We see mask wearing. We see this or that. Fault finding, judgmentalism, grievances, etc. But you know what? The fundamental issues are being ignored. Our fundamental problem is with God. That's the problem in this church and everywhere. Our fundamental issue is always with God. It's not with our brothers and sisters. It's not fundamentally our spouses. Our problem is with God. This is the issue in America. We've given way to idolatry, self-worship. People offending me. No, people are offending God. That's the issue. It's it's your offense. It's my offense towards God. This is the issue, brothers and sisters. This is the thing we have to wake up to. This is the revival. This is it. God is hardly a consideration in the discussions. The holiness of God, the authority of God, the fear of God. The fundamental problem in American churches is a lack of the fear of God, a God-centeredness. It's not there, it's man-centered, too much pride. The worship is tepid, man-centered, consumeristic, because there really isn't the love for God. God isn't number one. God isn't being worshipped Monday through Saturday. Will He be worshipped on Sunday? I don't think so. And the problem is withdrawal of the Holy Spirit from our homes and churches. Where there's a lack of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gratitude and meekness and faith and all these things, why is there such tension in families and churches? Now, granted, God is doing a work here and there, and I see him doing a work in our church as well. But I'm saying where there's a lack, this is my point, where there's a lack, where there's contention, where there's conflict, where's the Holy Spirit? verse 11 of the same passage, where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? They have grieved the Spirit. The grieving of the Spirit. So now what? This is the the predicament that the prophet gives and lays before God as he confesses all of this before God. He says, we're in so much trouble, God. Oh, we're in so much trouble here. Now what? Pharaoh's armies are coming down on us again. Moses' rod is in the air. Only one thing that could happen. There's nothing else but God. God, come down. God, move heaven and earth to do what you need to do. Help us, God. And that's the prayer here in chapter 64 and verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. What what is it the prophet is saying? What the prophet is saying is the problem is so rough. We are in such a dysfunctional condition that, that we need God. And we have to come to that point, brothers and sisters, where nothing else would do. We need God, and we will not, we will not move one way or the other. We, we will not give up. We'll keep our hands on the air. We'll keep looking up. We'll appeal to God until He comes. God, we need you. Come down now, Rend the heavens. What does that mean? Tear open the very fabric of the universe. Rip through the galaxies. Move heaven and earth. It will take the moving of heaven and earth to take care of what we got before us right now. Exercise your power and enter our world. Those are the two things. Exercise your power and come down here and enter our world. Children, God must get off his throne and come down here and help us. That's your third point. This follows up on the promise of God, in chapter 63, he's mighty to save. We did that last week for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked, but there was no one to help and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm has brought salvation for me. That is, the, the prophet is praying this prayer saying, God, you must come down, you must do it. It must be you, nobody else. Come down, help us now. We need your help. Get, very, get personal, and God gets very personal. How does he do it? The Son of God breaks into our world. The Creator enters the womb of the woman, a rude interruption, into a womb of a woman. God takes on human flesh, two natures, one person. God becomes one of us. Could God be more personally involved than in that? What do you think? Could God become more personally involved than that? I don't think so. I can't think of a way in which he would be more personally involved than taking on human flesh. Entering into the womb of a virgin. Being born in a stable. Crucified on a real cross. Put in a real grave. Belonging to somebody else and raised from the dead. On the third day. That's involvement. That's involvement. God, come down, divide the heavens, come down, split through the galaxies. Open up the womb of the woman. Bring in the very Son of God to be our Savior. God, we need you to intervene. Come down, do it, and do it now. But the mountains might shake at your presence, verses 2 and 3, as fire burns brushwood and fire causes water to broil. To make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence and when you did awesome, staggering, dreadful, breathtaking, awe-inspiring things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. Forest fires and earthquakes, that's what he's bringing. Why forest fires and earthquakes? Because that's the only way to get a mountain to move and it's the only way to bring down the Amazon rainforest. There's no other way to do it. You can't do it with chainsaws and a bulldozer. You can't move Pike's Peak with a bulldozer, kids. You can try if you want. Go take a bulldozer up against Pike's Peak. We'll see what you could do. I think I did the math on that. One time it'll take about 6 billion years for you to work through Pike's Peak with a bulldozer. So so shake the mountains. Burn down the forests. We need fire. We need forest fires. We, we need mountain-moving things to bring about, and your presence is the one thing that can do it. Man's puny efforts can't possibly cut down the Amazon jungles. A few chainsaws aren't going to pull it off. A bulldozer isn't going to do it. It's going to take a forest fire to do it. You're going to have to shake the mountains themselves, split them all the way down to the bottom, let them topple over. That's the only way in which this is going to be fixed. That's it. Can't solve the sin problem you can't solve Satan's problem. You can't solve any of these problems but for God's involvement at this level. And it must be the work of God. Verse 3 again, do that which we would never have expected. Do that which we could never have anticipated to happen. Children, this is it. Surprise us in the most unexpected possible way. Surprise us, God. Take us by surprise. Do the thing we would have never expected. It was Something of a clue that maybe some deity would come down. But did we know it was going to be the very Son of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Those pieces weren't exactly put together in Isaiah, was it? Do you get that from the prophecies? I don't really see it. It seems to me that there's some veiled references, but that's it. This is beyond anything we could have ever expected. God sent His only begotten Son into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And when we have seen it, it leaves us with only one answer, and that is God was here. God did it. When it's done, there's only one explanation. God came down and God did it. So many impossibilities in the ministry. It's all impossible. All this is impossible. can't do any of this. We have to face it. What we're dealing with here is impossible. What we're dealing with in counseling rooms is impossible. What we're dealing with in evangelism is impossible. What we're dealing with with our unsaved relatives is impossible. It's impossible. What we're dealing with with hoping that somebody gets something out of this message this morning is impossible. This is impossible this is all impossible and we we have to come to that realization that what we're dealing with is impossible after 50 years of banging our heads against the wall we have to thoroughly grasp the concept of impossibility have you grasped the concept of impossibility The hardness of hearts, the strongholds, the dysfunctionality upon dysfunctionality upon dysfunctionality. Sitting at the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army coming down. What are you going to do? You've got four million people have to cross an ocean. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You tell me what we're supposed to do. What do you do? What does Moses do? It's impossible. He raises his rod, and God does it. That's it. So, brothers and sisters, we need God to save people in this city. We need God to save people in our county. We need 1,000 people saved in Elbert County. You say, that's impossible. Yes, it's impossible. We need one person saved and baptized in this church. You say, that's impossible. Yes, that's impossible. Break through 100 demonic strongholds. Return 30 prodigals to the church. Save every person in this church, every child. Break through the hardest heart. Imagine the hardest person possible in your own life. How in the world is that going to happen? There are so many layers of impossibility, of hardness of heart that have developed. The callousness is beyond... Uh, a Rockwell hardness tester to be able to determine it. It's just beyond anything. It's harder than diamond. There's no way that you're ever going to get through the hardest heart in your life. But God can do it. God can do it. God can divide through the heavens. Split through the universe. Cast galaxies away. Come down into the hearts of, of human beings. And do resurrections. God can do it. And this is a prayer. This is the prayer. Of the prophet here. God does the impossible, and when we have seen it happen, we will say, God did it. God was here, and He did this. So I, guess I just ask you can you envision the possibility of God doing the impossible? Are you willing to be surprised? Are you ready for a revival unlike anything you've ever seen in the history of the state? God can do it. But the first thing is you have to believe that this is needful. You have to feel the need. You have to feel a sense of anguish. You have to pray. Prayer is God's means of bringing this about. Now, I don't know what way, shape, or form it's going to take, but we need God to act. First, in my life, and then everywhere else, where rivers of flowing living water just flow through us and minister, and the evangelism, and the discipleship, and the love for one another, and the the, the spiritual growth and blossoming of the church is so phenomenal, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Can you envision the possibility of God doing the impossible? only thing we need, I think, in this church is need. What we need in this country is need. We need to need. Until there's a sense of need... God has stirred up in us a little bit of a sense of need, there will be no prayer in this church. And there will be no revival. Let's at least pray for a need. Pray for prayer. And pray for an increased sense of need and urgency. We need this not just for us. What we need this for is for God's glory, for the redemption of Jesus to be exploding around this country and the evidences of it be overwhelming to everybody, ourselves included, even the heathen will say, God has done great things for them. That's what we need. I have a few minutes left, and so I want to give you an example of this. one person with the anguish of soul, one pastor and 10 Zulus crying out in a dirty cow shed in 1966. You have to understand that South Africa has been and still is to some extent a living nightmare. There is so much demonic chaos in that country. It blew my mind to study the history of it, to understand what's going on even to this day. It's a, basically a prison camp to this day. But there are good things happening, finally. South Africa's nightmare. It's the most dangerous country on earth. You can't walk the streets at 10 o'clock in the morning unless you're with somebody and you have protection. But God did something. The missionaries there had failed. The prosperity of your typical Western life had pretty much overwhelmed the Dutch, the German Lutherans, and others. Over the years, it was missionary work there was basically a failure. It was so sad. And of course, eventually the communists had to take over because the Western nations had refused or were unable to disciple the nations. They just couldn't do it. It wasn't a revival. It all died out so quickly. There was a brief missionary work that occurred in the 1880s from Germany But Let me read this. By the early 1950s, the Lutheran work in southeastern South Africa had pretty well dried up. Erlo Stegen Stegen was the grandson of one of the first German missionaries who had arrived in 1883. He was a grandson. The Lutheran pastor officiating at the church where the Stegen family attended was converted while he was a pastor. And this event marked a spiritual turnaround for the Stegen family in the early years. Himself converted at 17 years of age, Erlo Stegen dedicated his life to ministry among the Zulus, which, by the way, was the toughest tribe in South Africa, arguably the toughest tribe in all of Africa. They were a warrior nation. For 11 years, Erlo ministered to the Zulu people, but he sensed a powerlessness about his own ministry. He founded the people, found that the people were open to the gospel, but the altar calls yielded superficial results. Thousands responded, but almost nobody continued in the faith. The Zulus were more committed to spiritism and cultural idolatries than most Christians were committed to Christ. Despite prayers and pleadings, family members of converts remained hopelessly demon-possessed. He couldn't cast out demons at all. People would bring their demon-possessed children to him, and he couldn't cast them out. Couldn't do it. The darkness was still suffocating in the Zulu nation. Well, first, this missionary was revived himself. Erlo Stegen was deeply convicted of his own pride, ethnic pride, lukewarmness, callousness, lack of sincere love and resistance against the Holy Spirit in his own ministry. Day and night, he cried out, Oh God, come down or I will die. He wept for days and weeks over his own spiritual bankruptcy. He confessed his sins before the little body of Zulu brethren. And that's when the Pentecost broke out in December of 1966. While hearing teaching from the book of Acts, a certain young Zulu woman was overcome by the message. She interrupted the preacher and asked to pray. The prayer was simple. Oh, Lord Jesus, we have heard what you did in the days of old. Could you please do it again? Couldn't the church today again be like the early church? Please, oh God, do it. That is when the Holy Spirit was poured out. A small group of about 20 Zulu people led by young Erlo Stegen gathered in a cowshed in Muff, Mulo, South Africa. Stegan recalls the moment this way. There was a mighty rushing of wind. The force of that wind was so great. It's difficult to express it in words. If you go to the service station or the garage and open a pressurized air container, and it blows at full strength, full volume, that's a bit like it. It could blow you right through you. And I felt I had to put my hand to my head and bow down and worship the true God, the triune God. There was such a God consciousness. Nobody needed to tell you. You just knew you were on holy ground and that heaven had come down. And what happened, the Spirit of God literally moved over that place. Immediately after this visitation of the Holy Spirit, the missionary encountered a high-order witch from Zulu country who walked seven kilometers to meet with him. She confessed her sin and asked to be delivered from the demon. The Christian worker sang a resurrection hymn to Christ, and the woman threw herself on her hands and knees and thrashed about like a wild animal. The Spirit claimed to be 300 demons strong. And it took a long time as the horde was finally cast out in the name of Jesus Christ. They watched it. Demon after demon after demon, 300 left this woman. This was only the beginning of powerful demonstration of Holy Spirit work, clearly demonstrating to the whole country that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Another witch who had inducted 1,000 witches into the practice was delivered of demonic control, and she repented of her sin. The demonic stronghold that had held sway for a 1,000 years over the souls of men, was finally broken in Africa. Thousands streamed into the mission to confess the sins from all ethnic groups. So many would not leave until they had confessed all of it. This is the number one indication that there will be a revival in this church anywhere else. There will be a long period of time in which there's confession of sins that just pour out in this valley. And it will go on and on and on for weeks and probably months on end. That's the first indication you have revival. Lots and lots of confession of sin. They confessed all of it. We have stolen, we have lied, we have sinned, we have murdered. They said some walked as far as 25 kilometers to hear the gospel. Spontaneous gatherings of hundreds of Zulus, Indians, and whites occurred throughout the area. Lives were transformed. Demons were dispensed with. Remarkable healings were reported. Often physical healings came out on confession of sin and repentance. Tribal wars had raged for a 100 years plus, seized these from uh, Those from neighboring countries were amazed that the hard-hearted Zulu tribe had been conquered by the love of the crucified Savior. Many thousands were delivered of alcohol, drug, and pornography addictions, and that's still happening to this day. We had testimony of three or four at the homeschooling conference stood up and explained how they have been amazingly delivered from the demonic control of some of these substances. It was a phenomenal time as we heard these testimonies. But thousands have been delivered from alcohol, drug, and pornography addictions through the mission work. Fire services were conducted where converts would burn their fetishes, amulets, occult paraphernalia, drums used by witches, occult books... Stolen goods, weapons, drugs, and pornographic materials. What became known as the KwaZulu mission became a sending out mission ministry to other parts of Africa. Fruitful agricultural endeavors transformed the landscape in Zulu land with avocado and pepper farms. The ministry was additionally self-funded by water bottling facilities, a dairy and jam production. A Christian college was added in 1994. A hospital in 2006. A radio station beamed Christian programming for 300,000 re- residents among the Zulus. Well, that's what happened in one of the most difficult places on earth. It was a visitation of the Holy Spirit upon 20 people in this cow shed in which the uh, cow manure was stacked like five feet high around them when they first inherited this shed. But it was right there where it all began. And now it's a ministry that touches uh, five, 6,000 lives every day in this area in KwaZulu. So praise be to God, the Holy Spirit is active in various places around the world today. And I think the question for us is, could that happen here? And I believe it can. I believe it can happen here. Even as it happened with Erlo Stegan. It could happen with any one of us here. It could happen with this church. So it's just for us to sense a need. Receive the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God in our own lives. Take upon ourselves the humble and contrite spirit. God is responding to that immediately. as, As this church becomes that humble and contrite church that confesses sins Willingly over and over and over again. God receives that. And He will continue to pour out His Holy Spirit upon this church, I believe. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank You for these great testimonies of Your powerful workings. Oh Father, we pray this day that You would indeed rip apart the heavens again. Come down, oh God. Bring about a reviving a work of Your Holy Spirit, another Pentecost, another opening up of the of the powers of heaven uh, in the hearts and minds of men and women in this country. We pray, Father, that you would bring about a reviving. Strike our hearts with your truth. Open us up to the word that you would have us receive this day. Father, we pray that you would turn back your face to us. Oh, God, we pray that you would have mercy upon your church. We know that you are a God who cares. You have committed yourself. You have covenanted yourself to this church. The Church of Jesus Christ, not just in Africa, but here in America and everywhere around the world. Oh, God, we pray that you would not leave your church, but come back, do a mighty work, glorify yourself, make your name known in this county and in every place around the world that you are the God who redeems. You are the God who brings about a great transformation, first with your people, teaching us to love you, teaching us to have a passion for your kingdom, teaching us to love others, teaching us to love our brothers and sisters even more, that the world will look in upon us and say, there is a church that loves. They love one another. They love God, and they love the lost. Oh, God, we pray you would raise this up with me first, with all of us in this room today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just more of that is what we're praying for. Well, what is described by the prophet is what came to pass in Matthew 27. The thing that was happening in the spiritual realm was manifested in the physical as well. So when Jesus died, something happened, and that was the earthquake. An earthquake happened. Recent geologists have found that there is an earthquake that, uh, that uh, occurred in that area right around AD 33. They've identified the year in which it happened, counting back through the layers of the strata, down at the Dead Sea, they found that there was an earthquake that occurred in roughly eighty thirty three at least counting back from the present year and uh, indeed, there was an earthquake that struck as Jesus died at the very moment at which he died matthew twenty seven fifty Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So, again, these are all indications of something very significant happening in the spiritual realm. Uh, You don't always see that in the physical realm. There's something under the current that is uh, happening, and that, of course, is explained or somewhat represented or symbolized by what is happening in the physical realm. So the earthquake, the saints walking out of the graves, what is this? This is that God has created a new order. He's uh, created uh, a beginning of a new created order, the grand introduction of an efficacious redemption taking effect already in these saints that are coming out of the graves and walking. This is the indication of the new life that we are receiving through the death of Jesus Christ. That there is something of a powerful influence of Jesus dying on the cross that seemed to, I don't know if it was the blood that spread around in the ground about it or what it was, but there was something in which God ordained for these people who were dead for a while to come out of the grave. It actually enervated them to new life, to some form of new life. Now, we don't really know what happened to them, but it is a symbol, it is a sign of the sort of thing that is happening with the death of Jesus Christ. That is his redeeming life that is now shared with all of us. So this is the answer to the prayer of the prophet playing out where he had cried out to God, come down, O God, do that which we could have never anticipated. And here's my question, who would have anticipated this to happen? For any of this to happen, I don't think anybody really understood the entire message of the prophets, let alone the things that God did not reveal in the prophecies. But did the disciples expect that Jesus was crushing the dragon's head on Friday afternoon? I suppose if they had thought that would happen, they may not have split or run from the scene. Peter perhaps would not have denied his Lord if they had expected that on Friday afternoon, Jesus was going to crush the head of the dragon. They didn't anticipate it. They didn't expect it to happen. And so now, I guess my prayer as we approach the table is that we would know that it happened. That we would be encouraged by the fact that it already happened. And that even though I cannot see entirely, or ear cannot hear the message entirely, that we would something, know something about the grandness of this, this event. Did the Romans expect that Jesus was solidifying his victorious kingdom? Did Pilate think that? Oh, this is Jesus solidifying his victory over Satan and sin and satisfying divine justice and demonstrating infinite divine love on the cross for his people? Did he say, this is it? This is Jesus making it happen for the kingdom. Pilate didn't say that. They didn't anticipate it. Did the Jews realize that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of a million Old Testament sacrifices of sheep, goats, and bullocks Did they sit there watching. This is the sacrifice. This is it. Final atonement of our sins. The propitiatory work of, of God. No more blood on the uh, cover of the ark in the t- tabernacle or the temple. No, they weren't thinking that. They had no idea. They didn't have a clue. Did the soldier who pierced Jesus' side realize that he would need the blood of the Son of God to give him new life. did he didn't realize that's a precious blood coming from the side of this crucified victim. He didn't realize. He had no idea. This wasn't about what Rome was doing. It wasn't about what the Jews were doing. This wasn't about what Satan was doing. This is about what God did. God did it. God acted, God personally got involved, rolled up his sleeves, this was it. God gave up his son on the cross, and the son of God willingly, intentionally got himself on the cross to destroy Satan and sin, to satisfy the claims of divine justice, to reconcile us to God. God came down, and God got it done. God saved us on that cross that day. God broke into our world, and he redeemed the world with his own blood. Acts 2028. We don't like to say that it was the blood of God that brought this about because it doesn't quite work theologically. But you've got to read it from Acts 20, 28 and said, it was God's blood that brought about our redemption on the cross. I don't know how to explain it theologically, but all I can tell you is that it was the blood of God that brought about our salvation and our redemption. And the propitiation that we'd so badly needed. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. None of the rulers of this age knew it. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things which God prepared for those who love him. A direct quote from our passage. So did anybody realize that this was it. This was God's work. This was the beginning of a new humanity. This was the new creation. This was the beginning of a new life, eternal life, resurrection life. Did anybody realize it? Well, now we do. But still, we don't know the half of it. Brothers and sisters, you get the sense that we're dealing with something bigger than you and me? This is big. This is really big. This is God's work to bring about our redemption and eternal life for you and for me. And to this day, I will still say, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard, nor has it entered into my mind the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We'll just say it one more time, won't we? Let's right. pray. Oh, Father God, we approach the cross again. and We're overwhelmed. There's the earthquake. Mountains are moving. Curtain is split. People rising from the dead, walking around Jerusalem. Something big happened that day. Something very big. Father, mostly it was your love for us, that you've so cared for us, and so much compassion for us, that you sent your son to die for us. And that you won the battle for us already. God, we pray that the bigness of this would just be bigger than ever before now. God, help us to see it, Spirit of God. Oh, that we would see our sin, yes, but our Savior, so much more. Oh, God, our sin is big, but our Savior is bigger. This is a great salvation that you have brought about for us. Oh, God, we pray this day that you would help us to see it, to understand it more, and to just be more grateful. God, Father, you so loved the world. You so loved us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for so loving us that you did this for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. And now we receive your life symbolized in this cup, this bread, in Jesus' name. Amen.